We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 16. Again, welcome to those of you that are joining us online just now. We're grateful that you're participating with us. Last time we looked at... um, Matthew chapter 16, I'm just finding my notes fall out of my Bible here in Matthew 16, and uh, we looked at uh, the passage about Jesus being the Christ and Peter's profession of that, and I decided instead of going into more of those details, which I I may well do uh, the next time I have opportunity, I wanted to move on to the next segment of the text, which is just uh, verses 21 through 23, if you'd turn your eyes to that segment of Matthew 16. Uh, 21 to 23. Apologize for those of you online. I don't have the notes on the website yet. I'm hoping to do that uh, later or uh, tomorrow, perhaps. But um, I have the copy of them here before me. I just uh, got too late, got distracted from uh, website work. So, um, verse 21, please. It says this. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Jesus, in this passage, reveals his impending death. He does that on a number of occasions. In fact, it would be an interesting study for you to pick up from this section and look at some of the others in Luke and the other Gospels where he predicts his death to the disciples and see how many there are. There are a handful of them. I didn't do that study for you tonight. That's your homework. Um, but uh, we, we open up in verse 21 with Jesus beginning to uh, prophesy about his upcoming suffering. And the text says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples. So he, he's beginning a program here of laying out some instruction to the disciples. He's not necessarily... Uh, giving it to them only one time or just in you know, one little brief statement, but he is, is teaching them that he's got to go to Jerusalem and to suffer. Now, in, uh, and it says here, he must go to Jerusalem. I'm going to take the liberty of going right away to a cross-reference. Listen as I read this one in Luke chapter 13, in verse 33, it says, Uh, He's speaking to Herod, or not to Herod, but to others for Herod. He says, Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish 
outside of Jerusalem. You ever think of that verse before? That's the Lord speaking, okay? So Pharisees came to him, said, Herod wants to kill you. He said, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside Jerusalem. That's Luke 13, verse 33. So he speaks of himself as a prophet, and that he is indeed a prophet, Luke 13, 33, that was. He, uh, he coordinates all his movements in service of his journey to Jerusalem. And I'll give you one other cross-reference here, uh, that this Jerusalem-centric idea was very uh, heavy on his mind and heart. It says in Luke 9, 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face like flint, as it were, and uh, set his face to Jerusalem. He, he had whatever his journeys were remaining, he had to wind and wend his way to get to Jerusalem because his time was coming that he had to be received up into heaven. Now, when he, it says here that he had to be um, uh, killed uh, in Jerusalem in, in Luke 13, a parish, uh, he couldn't perish outside of Jerusalem, and, and and you might then correlate that with Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. And Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 says something that you might have thought of when we talk about Jerusalem. And it says in Hebrews 13, 12, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. It's obviously talking about outside the gate of Jerusalem, but... Don't take that outside the gate and perish outside of, uh, must not perish outside of Jerusalem and set them against each other in some kind of smarty pants way. You know, we say, well, I mean, he, he was outside, but he, didn't, he said he was going to be inside. Um, he, he, he is not talking about that kind of technical aspect of, you know, the exact location within 30 feet or something like that. It's obvious that the Lord is speaking about dying at the city of Jerusalem instead of at some other city like Jericho or Samaria or Sychar or something like that. He's talking about speaking of, uh, of dying in the city or at the city of Jerusalem, not some other city. He's not making a technical statement that his death has to occur you know, within the city gate or within the walls or within the city limits. Doing this sort of criticism misses the point entirely of what the Lord is saying. Another way to miss the point is to start trying to figure out, well, what about all the other prophets? Indeed, not all prophets died in Jerusalem. And so you say, well, what does he mean when he says, that, you, know, you know, perish the thought that a prophet would die outside or perish outside of Jerusalem? Some probably died of natural causes in a lot of different places. Probably John the Baptist died somewhere else. Remember, he was a prophet. Uh, who killed him? Well, Herod did, probably not in Jerusalem, probably in some uh, fortress uh, prison uh, complex uh, that where he was, um, outside, it seems, of the city of Jerusalem, maybe quite some distance away, according to historians. But regardless, he was not killed by Jewish leaders. Uh, John the Baptist, wasn't he? He was killed by Herod, wasn't a Jew. Uh, the blood of Abel was shed outside of Jerusalem. 
since Jerusalem did not even exist at that time. But remember, the Lord said something about this, the blood of Abel from Abel all the way to who? Another particular fellow, Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, who was murdered by the Jews in the temple, the Lord said. Right in the temple precinct, like between the, 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 the altar and the, what's the other word that the Lord used? Between the altar and the temple, basically. That's where it was. Uh, so we're seeing an important link in that example in what the Lord says between a persecuted prophet and his death at the hands of God's people. Jerusalem is, is the place where Jesus died, but it's also symbolic because it is the leader of the nation of Israel, the leading city, the place where the leadership dwelt, the, the house of God, as it were, the place where he caused his name to dwell. So what's the point? The Jewish people and their leaders are going to carry out activities that will lead to the death of Christ. They will be held responsible for the death of Christ. From Jerusalem on down, it's like from, you know, saying Washington, D.C., representing the collective might of the United States of America. This will serve, this, this Jerusalem-centered death will serve to heighten to the maximal degree the guilt of the nation as they reject God once again. They rejected God immediately after the Exodus by rejecting his appointed leader, Moses. They did it in Samuel's day when they asked for a king. Remember, God said they didn't reject you, they rejected me. They did it. They rejected God throughout their history as they went into idolatry, and God punished them by splitting the kingdom, sending the north off with Assyria, sending the south off with the Babylonian captivity. In other words, they were rebellious and stiff-necked people, as Stephen said in his long speech in Acts chapter 7, how, you know, how they would do the same thing that their forefathers had done, and they hated him for saying that. In other words, the focus is not on the geographic location of Jerusalem so much, but the people that are there, and particularly the apostate leaders. And we get too caught up in the geography and the location, the latitude, longitude, but it's really about Jerusalem representing the city the, the inhabitants, the sinners that are there. Now, in all of this that I've said, I've not commented on one of the most important parts of the verse. It's the word from which we get the word that he must go to Jerusalem. Now, this is a little word in Greek. It's a special kind of verb and it's spelled D-E-I. doesn't have anything to do with diversity, equity, and inclusion. I found that interesting. I had never thought of that before today when I was looking at the Greek. Um, it's the Greek word that simply means it is necessary. It is necessary. Um, put it, putting it plainly, there was no other option. He had to go to Jerusalem it was God's will. And I, I want you to highlight that in your mind because that, is that word must is implied before each of the next three verbs. He must go to Jerusalem. And, and then you can put, if you're diagramming it, in little square brackets, must suffer. Again, brackets. Uh, must be killed. And again, brackets, must, and then be raised. You see that how that works? 
he must go to Jerusalem. And that is controlling the whole rest of the three, four clauses, the four verb clauses that are there. It's a necessity that he do that. He must suffer. He must be killed. He, he must rise again the third day. Why must he do that? He must suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And what he was going to suffer was arrest, false charges, physical abuse, multiple illegal trials, the mocking, the examination by Herod, more physical abuse. This was all before he was turned over to the Roman authorities and suffered more mocking and more physical abuse, flogging, which could itself kill a man. What an indignity that the Lord, it says, had to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. Many things. In, he had suffered many things from them already up until Thursday night before the crucifixion on Friday. He suffered then overnight and throughout the day on Friday and then was put in the grave before sundown on Friday. Injustice. What an immoral situation that he had to face on his way to redeem mankind from sin. Thirdly, it says not only he must go to Jerusalem and he must suffer many things, but it says he must be killed. Now, the Jewish people could not put anyone to death while they were under Roman occupation. Remember in John 18, verse 31, it says it is unlawful for us to put any man to death Why? Because Rome didn't allow them as a client or as an occupied state to have the ultimate authority over death and life. That's something that is reserved for the government over the area. If you're just a a lowly servant, a slave, a peon, as our sister used tonight in her prayer, uh, you don't get to have that privilege to govern yourself that way with that kind of power. So they did not put anyone to death. However, they were in effect equally guilty along with the Roman authorities for killing Jesus. In fact, Jesus would say to Pilate, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So the Jewish people actually, we could say, have the greater sin for if they had not brought him to Pilate, Pilate wouldn't have done anything, right? Pilate wasn't out looking for somebody to go kill of the Jews. In fact, he was going to release to them one of their prisoners. He could have released to them Barabbas that day and not had Jesus in custody and everything would have been just fine. So they have great guilt along with the Roman authorities for killing Christ. Guilt falls squarely on their shoulders. He must be killed. Now lately I've been sensitized to this idea that there are people who deny that Jesus died. As I mentioned, they deny the necessity of Jesus' death. But here we have in one verse that he must be killed. His death is there, and the necessity of his death is there. It behooved the Christ to suffer. No serious Bible student could believe that Jesus avoided death. In fact, no no serious historical scholar, Christian or not, denies the death of Jesus either. I know that's a bold statement, but I think that holds up. No serious scholar, academic, secular, or, or Christian, denies the death of Jesus 
and by Roman crucifixion. Now, they might deny the resurrection of Jesus because they think they have good scientific reason for that, but there's no scientific reason to deny that Jesus died at the hands of the Romans on a cross in the springtime around A.D. 30. The historical and biblical eyewitness evidence is overwhelming. I mean, it is a tsunami of evidence. It cannot be ignored. Jesus was killed, and he had to be killed. He had to be. Otherwise, prophetic scripture would not be fulfilled. Otherwise, we could not be saved. Otherwise, God's promises would not have been kept. We see multiple examples of this kind of language in the New Testament, and I'll just point to some of them. Uh, Don't try to follow along with me unless you want to exercise your fingers here quickly, but Luke 24, 26, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And uh, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 11, the text of Scripture says, uh, searching the Old Testament prophets were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Or Acts chapter 3 and verse 18, arguing still here that it's necessary that Christ die because of the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. Uh, Acts 3 and verse number 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Acts chapter 17, we looked at this before, Come kind of a favorite go-to verse for me, Acts 17, 3. Paul was explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, uh, Paul delivered to the Corinthians of first importance, first of all, that Christ died for our sins. How? According to the Scriptures, obviously talking about the Old Testament Scriptures. And then we go to the Old Testament itself. He made his soul an offering for sin. What chapter? Isaiah 53. Zechariah 13, 7, the sword strikes the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. You're not as familiar with that verse? Let's go there. Zechariah chapter 13, verse number 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. Alluded to in the Garden of Gethsemane. The shepherd was taken, and the sheep were scattered. The disciples left him all alone, except, you know, for John and Peter, who followed along behind. Um, What else do we have? Oh, Psalm 2, the nations rage against the Lord and against his Christ. Psalm 16, verse number 10, my my soul shall rest in hope. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Remember that passage quoted in the book of Acts? Obviously, if his soul goes into Hades, it had to get there by some way of suffering, right? Um, And that's in Acts 13, 37, it says that. How about in Psalm 22? Now, there's some debate about the nature of this psalm, but I'll tell you, uh, if, if nothing else, the Lord memorized these words of the persecuted David, and applied them to himself, appropriated them for himself. Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
or verse 6, But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Or verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Uh, what else? I mean, verse 17, I count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. I, I uh, tend to think that when the Lord quoted from Psalm 22.1, he didn't forget the rest of the psalm. He knew the rest of that psalm. I've come to understand this is a poetic expression of the troubles experienced by King David. Jesus memorized it and had appropriated it for his own use. Some expressions do seem almost too specific to refer to David, and if that's the case, well, I'm happy to leave David as what he is, which Acts says he's a prophet, knowing that the Christ would come out of his family descendancy, he could say some things that were exalted poetry that became uh, highly relevant to our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm generally, Psalm 22, by the way, is a pattern of how a godly person responds in suffering. How? By committing his soul to the Lord, by entrusting himself to God. And what did Jesus do at the very end? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He did exactly what the psalmist taught about teaching us how to handle difficulties. Well, if Jesus was not killed, then he lied at this very critical juncture in his ministry when he said that he must go to Jerusalem and, and must be killed. I'm going in my Bible back to Matthew chapter 16. And if he did lie, he's not a prophet, but a liar and a blasphemous liar. But it's not even right to contemplate those thoughts, is it, for the believer? Because what Jesus said did, in fact, occur. Finally, it says he must be raised the third day. Jesus says he must be raised the third day. Now, it's one thing to predict that you're going to die. That's easy. Um, it's a whole other thing to predict that you're going to rise from the dead. Uh, of course, Jesus gave more details as to his death, so it was far more than a generic prophecy, like every person's going to die. But to tell others in advance that you will be raised from the dead, and that on the third day, that's amazing. This is the real proof in the pudding that Jesus was no fake. Who else has done this? Ever. Scratch my head. Anybody predict they're going to rise on the third day? Maybe some have. Have they done it? <laughs> Not a one, except for Jesus. He must be raised the third day. He's raised for our justification, Romans 4.25 says. He's raised as a, yes, as an exclamation point in the gospel, but more than that, he's raised because that kind of resurrection power is at work in his people. That's an exemplar, if you will, of God's power, and uh, he lives his new life in us through the Spirit. 
The rest of the gospel and the gospels and the entire New Testament is about the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead and what are the implications of that and that we must follow him if we hope to achieve the same resurrection from the dead. If you want to have a resurrection like Jesus did out from the dead, and not a resurrection to condemnation, but a resurrection to life, you have to follow him by belief. That's the message of the gospel said in a different way, perhaps, than you have expressed before. Now, Peter's indignant response to this is given in the next verse, in verse 22. And he's, it says he took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, you could say at least he took him aside to talk to him privately. Unfortunately for Peter, word got out, and now it's in the Bible for everybody to read 2,000 years' worth of Christians to see what Peter had done. Peter rebuked the Lord. This is like a father speaking to a child. A father speaking to a child. Listen, Jesus, let me tell you a thing or two. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a role reversal from fact and reality. The initial phrase here of what Peter said, far be it from you, is hard for me to translate from the Greek. It's something like, but it's not this, but it's something like, may God help you. Can you imagine Jesus says, or somebody, somebody says something and you think, well, that's crazy. And you say, well, God help you, friend. That can't be. Or God forbid although it's not the same as what Paul uses, may genoita, which you know, means may it never be. It's not that phrase that the King James dynamically translates as God forbid. Um, far be it from you doesn't seem to be to the best fit for my understanding of the text in Greek, but be that as it may, I think you get the idea. He's trying to distance the Lord from this, what he thinks, Peter thinks, is a crazy conclusion. Peter says, this will not at all ever happen to you. This will not at all. He says, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, that doesn't come across in English as strong as it does in the original text. In the original text, there's a double negative. In Greek, the double negative is a strengthening negative, not a weakening. You know, like we say, don't not, like it becomes a positive thing, or a negative negative is a positive, like in mathematics. This negative negative means it's really not supposed to happen. It's like a double negative like we see in, in another uh, context, in a, well, we'll say a happier context in John chapter 6 and verse number 37 where the Bible says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means ever, never, ever cast out. That's the double negative. By no means cast out. Imagine taking the Lord aside and rebuking him. What gall. What it shows is that Peter soon forgot his profession earlier in the chapter. Remember his profession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now I rebuke you. They didn't occur within a half a second like that, but it was a very close span of time anyway. Um, he may not have understood even the full importance of his own profession of faith. But basically, he forgot his head and treated Jesus like a human being that Peter could see with his eyes and not as the Son of God, which 
was beyond the vision of Peter to see at that time. Because remember, Jesus, as the Son, was, could we say, shrouded in humanity. His glory was not fully revealed like it was, say, on the Mount of Transfiguration when they saw him, which is actually the next chapter, by the way. We'll get there. Um, My friend, we must not treat God or Jesus like mere human beings at whom we can be angry or tell off or rebuke or whatever. You know, when people talk back to God, they're treating him like a child or treating him like a fellow human being. You wouldn't treat some people the way that perhaps you've treated God at times in your life, in your moments of bad thought, in your moments of anger against God. And certainly people out in the world who don't know the Lord have, have struggled with this sin. So that's imagining yourself in Peter's shoes rebuking the Lord. But now let me have you imagine what would it be like if Peter had had his wish that the Lord would never encounter death or resurrection or suffering or going to Jerusalem. I'll tell you the double negative that would apply then. Then we would in no wise ever ever, ever be on our way to heaven. That'd be the double negative. You're not going there. If Christ didn't go to Jerusalem and suffer and be killed and raised again, you're never going to heaven. That's a double negative reinforcing this hypothetical, this terrible hypothetical. Without the death of Christ, no human can be saved. None. Jesus closes the segment of text here by Uh, this pericope, if you will, to use a technical term, this story, this history, by turning to Peter and replied to him with a focus on the things of God. Peter's blasphemous suggestion showed that at that moment, Peter's flesh was being used by the devil as a tool to attempt to dissuade the Lord from carrying out his God-assigned mission. You remember in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 when the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness? And uh, he couldn't get him to fail. He left him. But one of those gospel passages, you look it up and see it, it says he went away, but he was observing or looking for an ideal time to tempt him again. Remember that? I can't think of the address just now. We'd have to go hunt for it. But here's one. Through one of Jesus' closest friends, Peter's flesh is taken advantage of and is used by the devil. Peter could not see the Lord for what he is. He saw Jesus in his mere humanity, and he treated him like a human child. But even though Peter could not see the Lord for what he was, the Lord saw Peter for what he was. At that moment of time, at that time, he was an offense to the Lord for suggesting something against God's will. It just occurs to me right now to think, I'm thinking this. You know, sometimes we face a temptation, but when you become more, and it's tough, and it's tough, but when you become more mature, you see the temptation as a solicitation to do something against God's will, and you hate it. You can't stand it because you become more like Jesus here 
And he says, I cannot bear the thought of doing something against the will of my father. It is too terrible to even imagine. You suggesting that to me, Peter, puts you on opposite uh, on an opposite track than what I'm on. You get behind me. And finally, let's notice uh, a common spiritual human disease. Why is he an offense to Jesus? He says, Jesus says, For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. How Peter was swallowed up with the secular and human concern of things and and how we are as well. How many times have you been consumed with the things of men and it has caused you to do something stupid against the things of God? Let's humbly accept the charge where it applies in our lives and repent of it. We have to admit sometimes we're like Peter. We're mindful of the things of men and not of the things of God. We'll never regret being mindful of the things of God, my friends. But I'm sure you often have come to regret about being overly mindful of the things of men, haven't you? Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to learn the lesson of Peter, to be mindful of the things of God. We too easily lose focus on the things of God and become focused on the things of this world. We, even though we don't even think about it, we become deeply conformed to this world and to its thinking, to its preaching, to its teaching, to its, to its media, to its ideas and philosophies and all of that, to its values and desires, to its greed. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to be like Peter here, or increasingly so, maybe I should say, be more like Christ, that we would take offense when somebody suggests we do something against the will of God, like Peter did to Jesus here. Thank you, Lord, that in no wise, by any means, ever, ever, ever would Jesus have taken Peter's double negative suggestion with the result that we would double negative have been able to be saved, but rather... Lord, you went to the cross. You went to Jerusalem first. You suffered many things at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders, and then you were killed. And gloriously then you rose again from the dead, all in fulfillment of your previous prophetic word. Thank you for this. We love you for it and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.